The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. And we are off to another edition of West of the Rocky Sound. Frank, thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late for some of you, but man, do we have a really, really interesting show lined up for everyone tonight. I want to thank in advance everybody in the chat room. Thank you for logging in and uh, joining us in this conversation. Shout out to everybody listening to us through um, iHeart. And, uh, of course, if you're listening to us through iTunes uh, on the podcast, hello to you. <laughs> and uh, uh, get ready because this one's going to be a good one. Genevieve, how are you doing over there? I'm doing all right. You're doing looking, good? Looking forward to all of this. Yeah, this 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 is going to be a really, really interesting show. I'm really excited. So I'm going to let you, you know, we're, we're not going to waste too much time here. I'm going to let you do the introduction for tonight's guest. And then we're going to get him on the line. So, Genevieve, take it away. A quick little summary. So, we're going to be interviewing Tony Ortega, who was born in 63 and raised in Los Angeles, right here in California. He's a journalist and a blogger best known for his daily blog about the Church of Scientology called The Underground Bunker. He has a BA and MA in English, receiving his first job as a freelancer at the Phoenix New Times in 1995, which also happens to be when he started writing about Scientology. He has continued to write about Scientology ever since. Currently, he's the executive editor of The Lip TV. Just about a month ago in May 2015, Ortega released a book about Paulette Cooper, a Scientology critic, and the conflict that Paulette had with the organization. And it's called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. And as far as I know, mm -hmm. he's actually touring um, the book right now and promoting it. So we're obviously extremely grateful for Tony taking the time out right now and being here with us. So please welcome Tony Ortega. Tony, can you hear us okay? Yeah, sounds great. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I was reading as well that, that you're from uh, Orange County. I, I actually uh, grew up in Buena Park. So uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of fun to uh, get to talk to somebody from uh, my neck of the woods. How are you doing tonight? Well, I actually am from the garden spot of Southern California, Compton. Oh, really? And uh, I was in Orange County for my high school years. But I actually grew up in Compton and Bellflower and Downey and and then ended up in Anaheim, nice. all over the place, California. No, I was going to say that, that you are definitely, uh, uh, I imagine you don't have too many friends in, in, in the Church of Scientology. Uh, however, you have done a great service bringing a lot of these issues with the church to light. Let's start a little basic here, uh, because there might be people that, Perhaps you know they haven't seen the you know that famous documentary that's out uh, going clear or or read some of some of the stuff that you have written. Why don't you tell people what is the Church of Scientology? How would you define it? Sure, and I do have friends in the Church of Scientology, Frank. Okay. Um, <laughs> make assumptions. You know, I have I have I have people I talk to who are who have left the Church of Scientology. I have people I talk to who have not left the Church of Scientology, mm. mm -hmm. and they're daily readers of my website. But, oh really? Um, the official, yeah, but the officials of the church don't like uh, the website, and part of that is that Scientology is a very secretive organization. Mm -hmm. You know, it was uh, 
So they started by a, uh, a man named L. Ron Hubbard back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And Hubbard's idea was that each of us is this eternal, immortal being called a Satan. And, um, and we've lived countless times before. But over that time, we've become uh, kind of blind to our true natures because we have something called the reactive mind, which holds us back. Mm-hmm. And only through Scientology counseling can you remove that reactive mind and begin to see your true nature and your true potentials and that you can become this superhuman being that is impervious to disease, has a higher IQ, um, has total recall, and ultimately can affect matter with the mind. Um, it's the, the universe itself was created by Satans who were bored. Mm. And they we're all playing in this game that they created. So mm. Hubbard's idea was that each of us could become these super powerful beings if we just followed his coursework. And over the years, he added layers and layers and layers onto those courses. Until today, there's just many, many, many steps you're supposed to go through, and they cost more and more money. So to get to the end of that process, which is called the Bridge to Total Freedom, mm-hmm. We estimate it's anywhere from between half a million to two million dollars oh, wow. for a person to go through all that. And yet, in the uh, 60 years that the Church of Scientology has been in existence, they can't show one single person who can show, who can demonstrate any of those abilities. But they're still convincing people that if they go mm-hmm. through these steps, that they'll ultimately get there. So that's a, a basic sense of what the Church of Scientology is about, that you're trying to recover your essential immortal nature by taking their courses, which get more and more expensive. Wow. And when did you become aware of the Church of Scientology? Well, I'm from L.A., like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, when you grew up there, and also I was the kind of kid that I was, uh, I devoured the L.A. Times every day, even as a small child. And so I think you're just always aware of Scientology. That's that's one of the headquarters. Mm-hmm. And I can remember when L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986, reading stories about that. And then in 1990, the L.A. Times had their amazing series by Joel Sattel and Bob Welkos. They had spent five years on it, and it was like a five-day thing at the L.A. Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was mesmerized by those stories. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but after that, the Church of Scientology actually put up billboards around town, wow. uh, quoting, taking quotes out of the series, out of context, to kind of poke fun at the LA Times. That was a big deal. It was back, like I said, in 1990. So um, all these things I was kind of aware of. I became, I was a college English instructor. At, I became a, a reporter in 1995. Mm-hmm. And one of the first stories I just fell into was about a man named Rick Ross, who had been sued. And the Church of Scientology had played a role in that lawsuit. And it was actually a fascinating larger story about what Rick did for a living, how the you know, Church of Scientology didn't like what he did for a living. And it was my first cover story. It was in November 1995, so I'm coming up on 20 years that I started writing wow. about Scientology. And when you know you, when you work for that kind of a magazine-style outlet, mm-hmm. one story kind of leads to another. You build up sources. Mm-hmm. I did another story about Scientology in Phoenix. Then I moved back to L.A., and, of course, that's you know one of the world headquarters, so I right. did some of my favorite stories of all times there at that point in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it just kind of built on itself. And then when I got to the Village Voice in uh, 2007, the next year is when Scientology really exploded as a news story, 
because of Tom Cruise and, right. and some, uh, the anonymous movement. And so I started doing more again, and in, in to the point where in 2011, there was so much going on that I started writing about it every day. Wow. And uh, although I left The Voice in 2012 to write this book about Paulette, I've maintained that daily news coverage at my own website, TonyOrtega.org. And there's just so much going on in, with Scientology around the country and around the world. I can barely keep up with it, even though I write about it every day. You know, Could I just ask one more brief background question for those um, listening? Sure. Could you um, briefly explain what the Sea Org is and how they operate? Oh, sure. So L. Ron Hubbard wrote Dianetics in 1950, which mm-hmm. kind of got this movement going, and then he um, called it. He started kind of started over again in '52 with something called Scientology, and he started building various foundations around the country places where people could go to get this counseling that he was selling. Um, but almost from the very beginning, the government was um, not happy with his health claims. And they took that more seriously back then than they do now. Mm. Um, and so he had to leave the United States in 1959. He went to England and really succeeded there. Yeah, fantastic success in England in the early 60s. But then the British government, started to come down on, you know, some of the things that they were claiming and the way people were complaining. And so by that point, Hubbard wanted to go somewhere where they couldn't touch him. And so he literally took Scientology to the sea in 1967 Wow! and ran Scientology from a ship from 1957 to 1975. And he had a little group of three ships. They were in the Mediterranean at first, then they were in the Atlantic. Ultimately, they were in the Caribbean, and he had, I don't know, 300 or so young crew with him, really fanatical believers that lived in these very primitive conditions on these ships mm-hmm. and helped him run Scientology, and he referred to them as his sea organization, which makes sense because they were at sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they formed the, the most dedicated crew uh, that worked with him. In 1975, he was sick of running Scientology at sea, decided to come back to land to the United States. And they literally invaded this little town called Clearwater, Florida. I was actually mm-hmm. there earlier today. And nice. uh, they surreptitiously took it over. They called themselves United Churches of Florida and bought the Fort Harrison Hotel, which is this real gym in the middle of downtown, and started taking over other buildings before the mayor even realized what was going on. And so to this day, that's where they're headquartered. And even though they're now back on land, they still call that inner organization that runs everything the Sea Organization or the Sea Org. Okay. And so there, there are three kinds of, of Scientologists. There are the people that don't work for the organization at all. They're just the parishioners. They're called publics. Okay. Mm. These are people that are Scientologists. They pay for courses. They pay huge amounts of money. They put in donations, but mm-hmm. they're not working for the church. Then you have people that are staff. These are people who work at your local church, what they call it an org, and they sign two and a half or five year contracts, but they make almost no money, and their hours are long. But typically, they'll have a second job outside of Scientology so they can at least survive. And then the third sector is the Sea Org. These are the people that are the most dedicated. They sign a contract for a billion years. Wow. And they work for pennies an hour. They're often housed in birthing. They do um, all kinds of different things for the church, but all, a lot of it involves manual labor. They're separated from their families for years at a time. 
these are really dedicated folks. Mm -hmm. And some of the most interesting stories have come from people that leave the Sea Org and come out and tell us about it. I was going to ask because obviously they're they're pretty well rooted here in in LA and and from what you tell me uh, uh Florida it's another big place. And I mean it makes sense, right? I mean they're they're both kind of like these, you know, celebrity little towns you, you always see famous people in these places uh and they appeal to a lot of uh you know actors and and whatnot uh what other places uh, not just in the u.s but around the world uh, where is scientology big not there's not much in the rest of the world um you know he really targeted the united kingdom and australia and south africa mm -hmm. english-speaking places at first mm -hmm. and there was a pretty sizable um presence in australia but definitely in england But they've both really dwindled. Uh, the mm. Latin, see, those countries take actual, they take a census and ask people their religious affiliation, unlike the United States. Mm -hmm. And so we know, for example, there are only 2,000 Scientologists in England. Oh, wow. And there are only, and there are only two, and the same number, there are only 2,000 Scientologists in all of Australia. Wow. And they claim hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, Alex Gibney's film, Going Clear debuted in Sydney a couple of weeks ago at this giant theater with 2,300 people. So more Australians were present for the <laughs> wow. premiere of Going Clear than there are Scientologists in the entire country. Wow. That's how small it is around the world. The mm -hmm. two places, the only two places in the world mm -hmm. where you might actually run into a Scientologist on the street mm -hmm. are Los Angeles and Clearwater, Florida. Wow. There just are very few in the rest of the world. And, and, you know, don't, don't buy into their myth that they appeal to all these actors. They've got a few. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. they, they attracted Tom Cruise, John Travolta, and Kirstie Alley mm -hmm. back in the 70s or 80s. But, mm -hmm. um, the younger stars that they've got, people like Bonnie Rabisi, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Moss, Erica Christensen, Beck, they were all born into it. They, they didn't join. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were brought up in Scientology. So, They've got they've got some young stars that grew up in it. Mm -hmm. They've got a few older folks that joined when it was less had less of a stigma. Mm -hmm. But you don't see them attracting new people. I mean, it's not it, the word is out. And right. Scientology, I think, is a, a little sick of of um, Hollywood. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Hollywood's a little sick of Scientology's influence, and I think you're you're seeing kind of a backlash against it now. What is the stance of uh, the Church of Scientology on on medicine, specifically psychiatry? I know over over the years I've heard a lot of you know like Tom Cruise speaking out against it and all that. What what's the issue there with Scientology and and psychiatry? When Elon Hubbard's story was that before he published Dianetics in 1950. Mm -hmm. In 47 or 48, so he claims that he took these ideas of his and this material and this theory for how to heal the mind mm -hmm. to the American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical Association and said, here, I have discovered how to heal the human mind. And, of course, they looked at it and realized it was pure quackery. Mm -hmm. As, um, as uh, uh, Larry Wright said in the film, I thought it was perfect, he said, they looked at it and it looked like, psychological folklore you know it just it, it just it was not there was nothing scientific about it and they weren't interested and he, that just enraged him and so ever since he made psychiatry the ultimate evil that that scientology opposes mm. to the point where in his in his lectures he would talk about how the evil psychs as he calls them are responsible for everything bad 
in the universe, going back millions of years. Now, you know, my textbooks tell me that psychiatry is only about 100 years old, right? Mm -hmm. But according to L. Ron Hubbard, the evil psychs have been ruining everything for all living beings for millions and billions of years. It's their devil, it's their Satan. And so they don't, they don't care if you, I mean, if you break your leg, a psychologist goes to the hospital. If, if you're given medicine for it, they're going to take it. But what they, what they really don't want to have anything to do is psychiatric care or psychiatric medicine. That's the difference. I know, I know some people kind of, you know, they get confused with Christian science. Those yeah, people don't yeah. even want to take aspirin, right? But right, right. You know, Scientologists will go to a doctor for med- physical ailment, but they are encouraged as much as possible to, ha- to handle any of their problems with Scientology methods. Mm-hmm. So we do hear about people who get cancer, for example, that decide to try to handle it with psych- uh, Scientology methods, even though that's not a psychiatric ailment. And, you know, you see a lot of online GoFundMes mm-hmm. for these older Scientologists that are battling these diseases that they didn't handle by just going to a doctor. So uh, there are some Scientologists who, who stay away from all medicines, but I think the official line of the church is just stay away from psychiatry and psychiatric medicines. Oh, wow. At this point, I'd like to ask, and I'm sure it's been bugging a lot of people, kind of a loaded question. Isn't it strange and almost ironic that they promote a type of counseling, what they call auditing, even though they hate the idea of psychotherapy so much, which, you know, to a lot of people, this auditing looks exactly like a type of psychotherapy. Well, Genevieve, you hit it exactly. I mean, from the very beginning. I mean, this is why... You know, why Why was Hubbard so popular in 1950? Mm-hmm. And I think it's that in 1950, people were curious about things like psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. but it was expensive. It had an odd sort of European gloss to it. Americans mm-hmm. maybe weren't ready to, to take it on. And so along comes this guy that says, you know, you don't need to go to a psychiatrist. You don't need to pay all this money. Buy my book, and you and another person can sit down and do this counseling yourself. I mean, that was one of the appeals of Dianetics was okay. that it took no training. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you just follow his instructions and one person was the auditor and the other person was the subject, they call it pre-clear, the auditor just listens. And, and you know, you would sit down with another person and talk about the traumas in your life. Well, you know what? Of course you're going to feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you've got somebody who's going to patiently listen to you while you talk about the bad things that happened in your childhood and, and other things in your life, of course you're going to feel better. And, and as you point out, it's, there's not much difference between that and psychoanalysis. And I, I remember hearing people call it um, a poor man's version of psychoanalysis, right? It was very cheap mm-hmm. at first. So, yeah, he's, and, and, and these people would feel better. And then the trick was they ascribed that to Hubbard and believed that Hubbard had made some breakthrough scientific discovery. And he really hadn't. He had just taken some basic psychological effect and mm-hmm. put it together with these theories of his and it just got more and more outlandish but people became and I, I talk, I've talked to a lot of Scientologists who just that act of sitting down with somebody who patiently listens to them mm-hmm. is so revelatory that they spent the next 20 years chasing that feeling oh, wow. and it's never as strong as when they first started and, and they find themselves 20 years later with this 
metal this, this machine called an e-meter trying to drive away unseen and alien entities attached to them <laughs> and he was like how do we get from just a nice listener listening to my problems to this craziness and that's that's i think a lot of times um scientologists come out and it's, it's actually hard for them to deal with that mm-hmm. you know how did i get to that point and they're a little embarrassed it can take a scientologist years to decompress from that experience and Many people never go public. You know, I, for every person that tells me their story and I put it on my website, there's many other people I talk to that are just not ready to go public. And it's, it's a, they, they are mystified that something so simple took them into something so sort of sinister. No, I, I imagine. Um, while I'm asking questions, veering off the, that specific topic a tiny bit, it's pretty much explicitly stated that you know, the practices and the beliefs of Scientology in general are founded on fiction. And I get very confused about whether the followers and the believers do actually believe it's fictional or whether despite the fact that they are told it's fiction, you know, even by the creator himself, they still believe it's true. I I get very, very confused about that. Well, I don't, I don't know where you come up with that idea of fiction because they're not told that at all. Okay. I mean, if you look at the first book, if you look at the first book, what's the title of the first book? It's Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health. Okay. And Hubbard always sold this as a, an exact science. He, he claimed that he had discovered the true nature of the human mind okay. for the first time and that his methods were scientific. Later, he started calling it a church. Um, mostly for tax reasons. And long-time Scientologists will tell you, I was in it for the science. I believe that we had discovered how the mind really works, the true wow. nature of human beings, and I believed in these counseling sessions that I was actually remembering what happened to me 10 million years ago on another planet, that these were real memories. The e-meter confirmed it. They they believe that this is a science they're engaged in. There's no belief. I've had I've had Scientologists tell me, that one of the reasons that, that it appeals to them is they're never asked to believe anything. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're never, you know, you're, you're being asked to tell us what you remember from your life. Okay. I think this is part of why it appeals to um, celebrities as well, is that, you know, in other organizations, if you go to a Christian church or a mosque or a synagogue, mm-hmm. what do you do? You go to a building with a group of other people and you hear stories about things that happened to other people 2,000 years ago, right? And you're asked to accept some miracles and, and supernatural things as, you know, the secret to the universe and whatever. And that's fine. You decide that you want to be part of this group. You accept these things that are probably impossible, but they're part of your faith. Scientology is not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Scientology, you go down to the building, it's you and one other person, yeah. the auditor. And the auditor asks you about you. Yeah. What do you remember from your childhood? What do you remember from a previous life? What do you remember from 10 million years ago? It's always you, 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 you. And so I, my personal theory is that that's what appeals to some of these celebrities mm-hmm. is, you know, this is an organization completely dedicated to them. It's really unusual in OT3 that they're told about this Xenu story because that's the first time in all of their experience that Hubbard is telling them a story that they need to accept as the truth. Up until then, it's all been them talking about themselves. And so I think it appeals to people who like this idea 
that we may live in a mundane world and we may have a mundane self, you know, this flesh body we walk around in and, and we have limitations in our in, intellect and, but that there's inside of us, there's this incredible, you know, narrative of the universe that we're part of, mm -hmm. uh, that appeals to some people. I don't buy it. You know, I, I like the, you know, I don't have a problem with the fact that, you know, I'm a human being on a planet and mm -hmm. my life's only going to last 70 years and, you know, I'm not going to be able to do everything I want to do. It's okay. I mean, I, I appreciate life the way it is. But some people really like to believe that they're part of some grand narrative of the universe. And, of course, there are these magical superhuman beings that are just people can't see. And Scientology tells you, that, yeah, that's the case. And we're going to discover that by going through your own memories. Well, you can see why it's a powerful idea for some people who want to believe that about themselves. And also... They offer certainty. You know, that with this machine, we're going to tell you exactly what you were doing mm -hmm. 10 million years ago on a Tuesday at 10 in the morning. <laughs> I mean, wow. you know, to a scientific person, that's ludicrous. Yeah. But to mm -hmm. the people in Scientology, they're very susceptible to that idea that Hubbard and his machine can take you back billions of years and tell you exactly what you were doing in exactly what place. Okay, um, just very briefly, and if I could just rephrase the question, um, what do Scientologists do when they find out about certain, you know, revelations about how Scientology was founded, i.e. that... Zenu? The fact is, common knowledge that things are kind of made up along the way. As well, what, you're, you're asking me, what, what, happens, what happens when a... When, when Scientology gets here. told that it's it's not real. Right. You know, so, yeah. so I, I, I know what you mean. So there's all this information about Hubbard yeah. and what a liar he was. And exactly. And, and he nothing says, he said about himself yeah. was true and that he was a con man and he got arrested for things. And Scientologists aren't told those things. But what do they, what do, they do when they're confronted with this information that Hubbard was actually making stuff up about himself? He was a bigamist. He abandoned his children for the most part. He's a mm -hmm. terrible father. That the stuff that he made about uh, Dianetics and Scientology has no scientific validity to it. How does Scientologists handle that information is what you're asking me, right? Yeah. This is what's one of the things that's fascinating about Scientology is it's a very much a control, uh, uh, a system of information control. Mm -hmm. It's a stitching culture. It's, it's a interrogation culture. When, when you become involved in Scientology, you have to go through these things called security checks or sec checks. They're interrogations. And there are no secrets in Scientology. You have to tell them everything about your life. If you want to remain in the church as a, as a member of good standing, you have to tell them all about your sex life, all the details, all the people you've ever slept with. Mm -hmm. And they're writing this all down. Okay? And it costs you money. So and they're taught to snitch on, snitch on each other. So... If somebody's wow. watching Going Clear, if a Scientologist dares to watch that movie mm -hmm. and somebody else in their family finds out about it, they'll turn them in. Oh, wow. And then that person will then have to go through an interrogation that can, la that can last weeks. I talked to a woman recently who went through one of those interrogations because one of her friends turned her in because oh. she admitted that she'd watched Leah Remini on Dancing with the Stars. She was put through an interrogation that lasted three weeks long and cost her $4,500. Wow. So wow. knowing all that can happen, mm -hmm. Scientologists are very, very good at ignoring anything negative about the church mm -hmm. because they know if they actually hear anything negative and somebody knows it, 
it's going to cost them thousands of dollars. Right. I saw a question here in the chat um, mm -hmm. in regards to the e-meter. So I wanted to ask you, we were talking about auditing a, a few minutes ago, and you mentioned the e-meter. Can you tell me a little bit what happens during an auditing session? How this this e-meter, what's, what's its role during the session? Mm -hmm. Right. An e-meter is uh, a very crude device, but is incredibly powerful in Scientology. Mm -hmm. It's one quarter of what a polygraph would be, a lie detector. A lie detector, a polygraph, measures your pulse, your breathing, your uh, blood pressure, and your skin galvanism. The e-meter only does that last part. It measures an electric current going through your skin. Hmm. And if it was so a scientific a device, they would attach a couple of uh, you know patches to your chest and measure the, the electricity going through you. Instead, they have you hold on to the sensors, which introduces the variability of grip, the sweat in your skin, uh, the salt content of your sweat. There are various things. Electrical engineers have taken this machine apart and explained how it can be manipulated by a number of different ways. Mm. It's useless as a tool of measuring anything because of those variables that are introduced. But scientologists are trained to believe that this device is basically able to tell when you're lying. It's measuring. They believe it's measuring the mass of your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Of course, thoughts have no mass, but Scientologists believe this. Mm -hmm. But all that matters is that Scientologists believe that they cannot hold back a negative thought about Scientology or any other secret without the machine knowing it. And so because of that, it becomes an incredibly powerful interrogation tool mm -hmm. because they believe they can't hold back secrets. And mm -hmm. so they, what you're using it in auditing um, so that the auditor watches the needle and and you'll, you'll, you'll see the needle move and say, what were you thinking about then? And you'll say something about, oh, the, the, the color yellow. Well, what was the association of yellow in your life? Mm. And so they, you know, they use it as a tool to kind of help you with that psychoanalysis and right. speaking. Um, and it's just random. But it, it's more you know, nefarious use is in those interrogation sessions um, because they're used to get people to just talk about all their secrets. And so Scientologists just completely crumble and talk about everything in their lives, which is all written down and then used against them if they leave. So it's, a, it's just a really insidious device than the way that they're using it. I wanted to um, kind of take the, the conversation in a bit of a, a morbid direction, if, if you will. The death of uh, Lisa McPherson a few years ago or some time ago, I, I was too young to remember it. It's funny when I... When I went back to YouTube and found some of those uh, clips from, you know, some of the TV shows that covered it, getting the, the information in my head a bit, I was pretty shocked. What do you know about the Lisa McPherson case? Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and if you've discovered it? Uh, yeah, I mean, know? we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of her death. She died in December 1995. It was a long time ago. But the reason why it's significant is that um, the way she died, Mm -hmm. is is really directly tied to Scientology's uh, ideas about how to handle mental health. She was an um, attractive young woman from the Dallas area. She'd been mm -hmm. in the Dallas Scientology org and then eventually moved out to Clearwater. Um, and she was struggling to go clear. That's the first major intermediate step along the way to becoming, you know, this uh, uh, you know, experienced Scientologist. And she was really struggling to get there. We have found out later that David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology, was personally involved in her case. 
and probably should have seen the warning signs that she was mentally unstable. But at, she finally went clear, and then sometime later, she was involved in a small um, automobile accident in Clearwater, just a fender bender. And, but a paramedic was called, and they arrived, and they checked on her, and she seemed to be okay. And so then they were um, somewhere else, and they turned around, and she had gotten completely naked in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. And so they took her to a local hospital to have a, um, a psychiatric examination. And Scientologists arrived and said, you know, let her go, because, of course, that's the worst thing would right. be any kind of psychiatry. And these doctors were saying, look, she really needs some help, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they wouldn't, they, they took, they said, no, we're going to take her. We're going to take care of her. They took her to the Fort Harrison Hotel, which is that real gem in the middle of town. I mentioned that's like their, their mecca, their most holy spiritual place on earth. Right. And 17 days later, she was dead. Um, wow. she was kept in a room and they ran this thing called the introspection rundown on her. Mm-hmm. The introspection rundown was L. Ron Hubbard's um, idea for how to handle people who have had a psychotic break. He came up with it, uh, I want to say 1971, I might be wrong about that, but while they were on the ship, they were still at sea at that point, mm-hmm. they had a, uh, a man in the crew who had really gone kind of nuts, and Hubbard locked him up in a room mm-hmm. and just oh, wow. didn't, didn't you know, let him see anybody else, no sense, you know, just total sensory deprivation. Mm-hmm. The guy seemed to get a little better, and then Hubbard said, oh, okay, I have discovered the way to handle people who've had a psychotic break. He called it the introspection wow. rundown. And so that's what they did with this woman. They put her in a room. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let her talk to anybody. They would just bring her in food. The people who brought her things were instructed, don't talk to her, to ignore her. And she was raving. I mean, she was raving in that room. Mm-hmm. And um, she stopped eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. And 17 days later, died of dehydration. She was just extremely dehydrated. Oh, wow. And so it was, you know, I don't think they murdered her. I mm-hmm. think it was just, it was neglect. You know, they, yeah. they, they were following these insanely stupid rules that L. Ron Hubbard had written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they couldn't veer from them because they didn't know another way. And so she died, and it took another year before the public actually heard anything about it. These, um, the police were investigating it. And they asked for some help, and um, they weren't. Uh, somebody I know named Jeff Jacobson actually uh, noticed that the police were asking for help, realized that the address was the Fort Harrison Hotel, said it to a reporter, and then it, it exploded in the news story in 96 and 97. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the state of Florida actually criminally tarred the Church of Scientology. Yeah. Uh, and then the family of uh, Lisa McPherson sued the Church of Scientology. So. Through the late 90s, this was the biggest thing facing the Church of Scientology. They got a ton of bad press over mm-hmm. it. And in 2000, the medical examiner was convinced to change the, the method of death, and Scientology got out of the criminal charge. Oh, wow. And years later now, one of the former executives has come forward and said, yeah, we just threw everything we could at her and, and made her um, cave. So wow. Scientology spent something like $30 million dollars working that case, trying to influence judges, and got themselves out of the criminal case, and then the civil case was settled in 2004. And there's still repercussions from that today. But uh, Janet Reitman, in her book, um, Inside Scientology, mm-hmm. really did a great job um, writing about the Lisa McPherson case. Uh, she's got four chapters that are just amazing. And I guess the legacy is, the introspection rundown still exists. I mean, I've written about a couple of women in recent years that have been put through it. 
wow. that could be another tragedy, you know. Yeah. And again, it, it, ultimately what it is, is these people, the, the Church of Scientology claim to be doing better work than psychiatry, but the truth is they're amateurs, and they shouldn't be going near people with actual mental problems. Uh, this is something that it would be, uh, you know, you, you wonder why the government doesn't look into it. Right. And um, in, in this particular case, it was just a real tragedy. Yeah, no, I was going to say uh, it, it, it doesn't speak uh, very highly of our uh, judicial system. But, you know, I mean, it does seem like if you have the money for a good attorney and a good defense, you can pretty much, you know, get away with uh with with anything there was another incident that i i remember and i and i went back to to kind of refresh my memory a bit this one involved uh the travoltas and their young um son um jet who died under you know i guess uh, uh mysterious questionable, questionable <laughs> mysterious circumstances a lot of people felt that it was due to his belief in Scientology that his son died because he didn't get the care that he needed. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that case, if you can? Yeah, I mean, Jet had um, seizures, mm -hmm. and he was clearly autistic. And the Travoltas, for whatever reason, um, took him off his seizure medicine. I think I want to be careful on that one because, you know, I think it's too easy to draw uh, conclusions in that case, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know how much the Scientology was it was influenced them. I don't know Jet's mm -hmm. particular situation. Um, Travolta did tell the Bahamian police that his son was autistic, so mm -hmm. I think it's a, a myth to think that he didn't believe it or didn't know it. Um, I think it's just a real tragic thing, and, and I feel bad for the Travoltas mm -hmm. that they went through that. And did they not have him on seizure medication because of Scientology? I think it could have been a, a, a combination of factors, and I think they really did love their child, mm -hmm. and they didn't want this to happen. Right. And so it's one of those cases that I know journalists want to make it black and white and mm -hmm. blame Scientology, but I think there could have been a number of different factors. And so I... I I tend not to write about that one too much. I see. Another topic that that comes up when you know when you talk about Scientology and and some of the celebrities, particularly in the case of uh, Tom Cruise, and I know again John Travolta comes up in this, and uh, it kind of goes with the uh, Supreme Court ruling this week making uh, gay marriage oh, yeah. legal. It's the it's it's homosexuality within the Church of Scientology. First, can you tell me what is the Church's stance on homosexuality? Yeah, it's a very homophobic organization, and it, it goes back to Hubbard. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in Dianetics, he called it a perversion, and he came up with this thing he called the tone scale, mm -hmm. where you put human emotions on a on a scale, and um, it's it's a, it's an odd scale because, for example, love is not on that scale. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> but uh, one of the things that he, uh, you know, the higher you go on the scale, the more, the better your state. And one of the lowest ones is 1.1, which she called covert, covert hostility. Hmm. Someone who is 1-1 one, one is someone who might be smiling at you while they're planning to stab you in the back. Oh, wow. And he then said that homosexuals are 1-1. One, one. And so very clearly, homosexuals are not to be trusted, hmm. and they mean um, uh, harm. And so in Scientology... You do auditing to raise your tone level on the tone scale. 
Mm-hmm. And so from the beginning, the idea was gay people are one, one covert hostility, but if they do auditing, they'll be raised to two, three, four, and they'll be in better shape. But so it's a gay cure, you see? Mm-hmm. Wow. And I've talked, I've talked to former top officials that absolutely this is the thinking inside is that Yes, you could join Scientology if you're homosexual, but you need to get auditing so that you're no longer homosexual. (laughs) And um, there there are places in the United States where there are Scientologists who are more tolerant, of course, individually. But the church's official line is that, you know, homosexuality is a perversion and that homosexuals are one-one. And that's still the truth today. So, you know, and I've, I've read the papers, for example, of a man that was a... Uh, homosexual who was in the church and really wanted to change things. Mm-hmm. It was very clear from his his work that he was told, yes, you can be part of the church, but you just can't engage in any kind of homosexual activity. So mm-hmm. it's just a it's a really screwed up organization, and it would take a lot to change it. Because I think David Miscavige in particular is very homophobic. Mm. Um, but so what do these stars do? What do these actors do when they get in? Uh, because clearly John Travolta's got some issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, why, that's why Travolta can't be honest with himself or with the public. Right. Because, you know, if he came out as a homosexual or a bisexual, mm-hmm. that would, you know, put him in jeopardy with the church. Now, with Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. I think those rumors are completely garbage. I, I, I think any reporter who covers Cruise honestly mm-hmm. and with good sourcing will tell you that there's nothing to the gay rumors. But with Travolta, you know, you know, and, and there's also this notion, even Alex Gibney said this in the film, that, you know, they have all these secrets that they've written down, mm-hmm. and that makes it tough for John Travolta to believe. And I, I think there's definitely yeah. something to that for a lot of people. But with Travolta, what more could they tell us that we don't already know? Right. You know, <laughs> I, you know, if he came out tomorrow and said, yeah, I'm attracted to men, he'd be a hero. People would right. love him. I, I, I bet he'd get even better movie roles, yeah, you know? very true. But uh, for some reason, he stays in that closet, mm-hmm. and I think Scientology has a lot to do with it because Scientology has taught him that homosexuality is, is one-one. It's covert hostility. And you talk to a lot of Scientology members, both old and new. What is the consensus of... Uh, David Miscavige's leadership, I know that actually he himself said that he was going to, you know, um, usher in the, the new age of tech. I think that was the, the phrase that he used. And it seems like the Church of Scientology became a little bit more strict in a lot of ways. Or or is that just the impression that, that you know, maybe I'm getting because I'm, I, I, you know, haven't covered this for years. But what what have you heard about David Miscavige's leadership and how it compares to uh, when L. Ron Hubbard was still around to run things? Yeah, well, I mean, you got to give the guy some credit. I mean, most organizations like this have a hard time surviving when their founder dies. And mm-hmm. that's 29 years now since Hubbard died. True. And uh, I'm gonna start, uh, yeah, 29 years. So, uh, L. Ron Hubbard ran Scientology for 36 years. David Miscavige is up to 29 years. I mean, the, 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 he's done kind of an amazing job getting Scientology through some big crises. He got the tax exempt status, that kind of thing. But he's got a problem, and that is that Scientology cannot evolve. They have to rely on everything. He can't, he's not allowed to write his own policies. It, he has to just enforce what Hubbard wrote. Oh. Hubbard left behind an insane number of policies that governs everything from how to run a church to how to wash windows correctly. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy was obsessed with telling people how to live. And Miscavige cannot overtly change any of that. Now, mm-hmm. he's, he's been subtly changing things in significant ways um, that 
are driving away a lot of Scientologists because they don't want him to do that. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it in a way that really puts the emphasis on fundraising, and he's um, he's doing he's enforcing things in a way that rips apart families. Mm -hmm. So there's been a, a large exodus of longtime loyal members who are not leaving because they've lost faith in Hubbard or Scientology. They just can't take the scavenge anymore. So uh, Scientology is in big trouble right now. There's a lot of really good uh, people leaving Scientology today, and he's, he's such a martinet. He's, so, he's such a stickler for rules. And I think, you know, the thing about Hubbard was he came up with all these things, all these things like ethics and disconnection and fair gaming people, you know, retaliating against people. He came up with all that. But I've talked to numerous people that worked closely with him saying that he knew when to back off. You know, when somebody was, you know, they'd been in the Sea Org and they're working day and night and they're about to break, mm -hmm. Hubbard would, would see that and try to make things a little bit better for them. Well, they say Miscavige just is incapable of that. He just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and he pushes people away. I, I think it's, you know, some of the people come out and they say, oh, things were great under Hubbard and Miscavige is messing it up. I think that's an exaggeration. I mean, Hubbard put all, big, all these policies into place. Mm -hmm. But I, I do, you know, I think there's no question that Ms. Gavage is driving away a lot of people that Scientology could really use, you know? Mm -hmm. Tony, we're going to take a quick uh, top-of-the-hour break here. We're going to play a quick song, and then we're going to come back, because we still want to talk to you about your book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, How the Church of Scientology Tried to Destroy Paulette Cooper, uh, which is a, it sounds like a fascinating story. And I know you've been promoting the book here in, in L.A. Unfortunately, we missed it, <laughs> but uh, we heard Florida about it. Florida today? Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, you're just flying back from uh, uh, Florida as well. And we also want to talk about what happens when people leave the church and, and what happens to people who are critical of the church church and things of that nature so if you'd be so kind tony just to hang on the line for a few minutes Bet. awesome all I'll right run down and get my laundry <laughs> cool <laughs> <laughs> sounds good and we'll uh we'll be right back in just a few minutes we're gonna play a little bit of um oasis because i like this song and mm -hmm. haven't heard it in a while Here we go. <laughs> don't wait go away west of the rock is coming right back our guest tonight tony yeah. ortega enjoy this one here we go What's up, guys? This is Jorge Diaz of Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. And you're listening to West of the Rockies with Frank. This portion of the show is sponsored by Haunted Orange County, your premier source for all things haunted in and around OC. From haunted history ghost walks to ghost group hunting expeditions at some of SoCal's most haunted destinations. Make your fall plans early and book an upcoming tour or investigation today. Visit hauntedoc.com. second hour of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. The conversation is just heating up. It's So far, it's been amazing. Um, as always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to check out the website at WOTRradio.com. A lot of cool stuff on there. 
including a, an interview with a former Scientologist that mm-hmm. we did a, a few weeks ago, Lynn Campbell, who has a, a hair salon right across the street and does lovely haircuts and uh, yeah definitely she's done my hair a couple of times and i must say never been happier lesson she does everything yeah no she's great she's great (laughs) uh so uh yeah no shout out to lynn but yeah definitely check out the website wtrradio.com a lot of cool stuff on there uh so always i'm joined by uh genevieve who you can find on twitter Genevieve. If you can spell my name, it's yeah. Genevieve Uway. <laughs> on Twitter, and uh, you can also catch her on this station, Thursday Night Cinema Music Show, taking requests, telling jokes, and all kinds of weird, oh, random silly things. Silly things. Yeah. Anything goes. Kind of like the Scientolo uh-huh. cakes I'm reading about on the chat room. You're uh, missing out. You're <laughs> missing out. <laughs> I can tell. Uh, shout out to everybody in the chat room and everybody listening to us through iHeartRadio. As I said, this is, uh, it, it's, it's been an amazing show. Uh, we're joined tonight by Tony Ortega, uh, journalist, current executive editor at The Lip TV. Mm-hmm. And he also has a very, very popular blog uh, called The Underground Bunker, which you can find at TonyOrtega.org. Being updated constantly. Yeah, so. and I mean, if you scroll, I, I, it's almost like a, a little black hole in the internet. You start scrolling and reading, and next thing you know, it's uh, it's Thursday, and you miss three days of work. Sounds like YouTube. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but we're really excited to have Tony uh, on the show. Tony, can you hear us? Okay. Yes, yes, I'm here. Awesome. Uh, now, Tony, I know you just published this book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. Uh, how the Church of Scientology tried to destroy Paulette Cooper. Can you tell me a little bit about this book and, and how and why you decided to focus on the story of uh, Paulette? Yeah, sure. Paulette Cooper um, was a magazine writer in Manhattan who was one of the first people to really uh, dig into Scientology's secrets. She was not the only one, and there were other people a little before her, but mm-hmm. her book, The Scandal of Scientology, came out in 1971. It was the harshest book and so far and it and it was a paperback so it sold well mm-hmm. and Scientology a few years earlier had created its own spy wing I don't know how many churches have spy wings but Scientology does to this day Wow! and they directed all of their retaliation efforts against her they smeared her they tried to ruin her reputation mm-hmm. they framed her for a felony at one point she was facing 15 years in prison wow. for a crime she had not committed they encouraged her to commit suicide. Wow. Um, they ran multiple operations against her from 1969. Um, they, 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 they sued her 19 times. Wow. All of those lawsuits were wrapped up in 1985, but I actually found evidence that they were still spying on her and keeping tabs on her up until the year 2010. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So this, this woman, nobody went, went through as much retaliation as she did. And the reason I, I had gotten to know her, and, you know, one of the things, when you write about Scientology, the number one thing people always ask you is, well, are you worried about it? You know, are you going to be harassed? Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this woman, Paula Cooper? I mean, you know, she's just sort of this legend. But I got to know her as a person, and I realized that there was a much more interesting, larger story there. And so I proposed that we write a book, and, and I, I wrote a book about her with her cooperation. Um, and so that's, that's what I did uh, the last couple of years. The book just mm-hmm. came out, and we've been touring on it. Uh, and we just had an appearance today in Clearwater, right? Just a yeah. block across the street from one of Scientology's facilities. So that was a lot of fun. It was a big crowd. And, mm-hmm. you know, people, you know, the movie Going Clear has helped a lot. Yeah. I was in that. And mm-hmm. it's made people very fascinated about Scientology. And so now I've got this book out. I hope, you know, people read it and 
see just to what extent Scientology went to back then, mm-hmm. because they're still doing things like it today. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a lawsuit going on in Texas involving a couple that, that was being surveilled and harassed. And so in, in an effort to keep Miscavige out of that case, mm-hmm. Scientology stipulated to the evidence that, yes, they still are hiring private investigators and lawyers, and they're following people and harassing people. So, you know, not that much has changed since what Paulette went through in the 70s, but she just got it worse than anyone else. And mm-hmm. the reason I decided to do that story was that, um, you know, Janet Reitman had written a really great book about overall history of Scientology in 2011, and then Lawrence Wright had written a ma- you know the major book about Scientology focusing on Paul Haggis and L. Ron Hubbard. That came out in 2013. So I wasn't going to try to do the same thing again. I wanted a, one specific story that was very narrative-focused, very cinematic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just thought her story was so dramatic, and I, I was able to bring in a lot of things that were happening at the time. I also, I also wrote it in a different way. I didn't write it. it. It's a history, but I wrote it as if it was happening. So it kind of unfolds wow. like a novel, and okay. people are really responding to that and saying that they enjoy the, the ride. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. Could I just ask, is it scary deciding to write and, I guess, deciding to publish something about Scientology? You know, uh, for Paulette, it was a big decision because mm-hmm. she settled everything in 1985, and she has spoken out since then, but she's always been kind of careful. Yeah. And so... First of all, it was difficult for her to go back through those days. They're very difficult days for her to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, she was literally on the verge of suicide in, in the summer of 1973. Oh, my. But also, um, she doesn't want the harassment to start up again. Mm-hmm. And so that was not a simple decision for her to make. Um, I, oh, I, however, was anxious. I thought it was a good story. But then, then it was an issue getting a publisher. I I am, am published by Silvertail Books in London. Yeah. And my publisher is a man named Humphrey Hunter, and he's decided, even though in England it's even more risky, that he's fascinated by the subject. He published John Sweeney's book, which came out a couple of years ago. He republished a book by Russell Miller that's a legend in the field, Bareface Messiah. And so now my book is his third book on Scientology, and he's wow. in England where it's, you know, they have less protections than they do here. Mm-hmm. So Humphrey's just really brave, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that he's my publisher. He actually helped me figure out how to tell the story. I'm really indebted to him. And the book looks great. So, I mean, I'm I'm very happy with going with Silvertail Books. And I'm going over there the next month. I'm going to be in London. Uh, we're putting on an event on August 4th at Conway Hall. Mm-hmm. And I'll be with John Sweeney and Humphrey Hunter, so that should be fun. Oh, that sounds like a blast, yeah. I know, uh, Frank's getting jealous. <laughs> I know, yeah, I love I love London and that side of the world. It's 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 great. Uh, now, I was reading, you know, these private investigators and all. If you just do a Google search, you will find very current news on this. Yeah. Um, and I know that you have been a target of theirs. <laughs> I was reading a, an article here where a spokesperson for the Church of Scientology called you a quote-unquote parasite who used bigotry and false allegations about the Church of Scientology to create a cottage industry of hate. And uh, it just goes to show how strongly, I guess, uh, to put it mildly, they feel about their critics. I think it happened earlier this week. A story came out about uh, some uh, email hacking that occurred in your name and your email account popped up in this story. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, this is a, this was kind of a fascinating story. Um, 
I had caught this guy a couple of years ago spoofing my email. What that means is he had been sending out emails making it look like I had sent them. Mm-hmm. And he had screwed up, and I was getting receipts on those. And so my webmaster, who knows this stuff really well, just you know, explained to me what was going on. And I called the guy up, and I said, what are you doing? You oh, know? Wow. And he claimed that we were both being victimized by another private investigator, mm. and it was part of some missing persons uh, investigation. Okay. And my webmaster, who was also my attorney, assured me that this guy was lying to me. But we didn't have any other information. I couldn't see that my access, my account had actually been accessed. It wasn't even my private email account anyway. Uh, I, I asked him flat out, are you doing something on the behalf of Church Scientology? He said, no, I would never work for those guys. And so I just dropped it at that point because I just didn't see anything that I could report to the police or anything like that. Yeah. So uh, a couple of years goes by, and all of a sudden I get this notice from the U.S. Attorney's Office here in New York that I have been victimized by this guy. They've arrested him. They've prosecuted him. He's pled guilty to hacking. And I've been invited to submit what's called a victim impact statement that could affect his sentence. And I was really shocked by that. I thought, you know, I still have no evidence that he did anything but that spoofing. I still have no evidence that he accessed any of my data. Um, I would, what would I say in a victim impact statement, you know, and they're not really giving me any more information. This time, my attorney called his attorney and said, we want to know one thing. Who was he working for? Was he working for the Church of Scientology? Mm-hmm. And his attorney gave us that same story about the missing person thing, and no, 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 mm. not working for Scientology. So again, I, I planned to drop it. I just didn't see where I was you know, really seriously affected. So then last week, uh, literally two days before this guy was going to be sentenced, I heard from Mike Rinder, who's the former international spokesman of Scientology. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, listen, I've got a potential story for you. And I said, what is it? He said, this Friday, this private investigator in New York is being sentenced, and I've been asked to submit a victim statement. Apparently, he hacked me. And I said, are you talking about Eric Saldari? <laughs> and he couldn't believe it. We didn't realize that we were both on this list. And so that's when we realized, okay, come on. I mean, who else could he be working for? He targets a journalist who writes about Scientology, and the former spokesman of the Church of Scientology, who's, you know, been the subject of so much intense surveillance and harassment. So that's when we decided Thursday that we would both write impact statements to the court. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. attorney then called me and said, do you want to speak at court? And so Friday, I actually oh, wow. spoke to the judge. Wow. The judge, the judge basically said, look, I can't, what I told the judge, that I, first of all, I don't know what this guy did to us. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I, I want to know who he's working for. And the judge explained he can't really force the defendant to give up information about who he was working for. But he was frustrated as well. He was surprised to hear that we hadn't been told anything about uh, our victimization. Oh, wow. I'm still pretty sure it was just that spoofing attempt. And I don't mm-hmm. think this guy ever got access to my data. Mm-hmm. But um, we're going to press him now. He was sentenced to prison. He's going to go to prison in a couple of months. But he's only going to be in prison for 90 days, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, which is fine. I don't care. If, I don't, I'm not trying to get this guy a bigger sentence. Right. I right. just want to know who paid him. Right. And right. so we're going to, we're going to keep pressing him to give up that information because it's just really a strange credulity to believe that anyone other than the church of Scientology would pay an investigator to investigate Mike Linder and Tony Ortega. And wow. if, if we can prove that, I mean, it shows that they're still using illegal techniques 40 years after they were using illegal techniques against Paulette Cooper. 
Right. And, you know, the lesson always is that the church psychology never changes. It's always still doing what it's always done. And, and it's because they're still following Hubbard's playbook. He's the one that set down these tactics and strategies in the 60s, and they're still following it. Speaking of strategies, are the group known as the Squirrel Busters a part of this strategy? And can you tell us a little bit as to what or yeah, that who was this such group a bizarre is? episode. <laughs> That's actually what convinced me to start writing about Scientology. Oh, really? It was April 2011. Uh -huh. uh, Marty Rappin had been the number two guy in Scientology. He left in 2004. He disappeared. He was so he he disappeared so completely. There were rumors online that he had died. Oh, wow. Um, but then he resurfaced, and he started a blog in 2009. It was harshly critical of the scavenge and the mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. And a lot of former Scientologists rallied to him. I started reading him all the time. It was fascinating material. And the scavenge retaliated with private investigators and attorneys, and he was being followed and surveilled. And then in April 2011, this bizarre goon squad shows up on his porch, Mm -hmm. They're all wearing these t light blue T-shirts that have images of Marty's head on the bodies of squirrels, with the with the cross out through them, and they've got they're not only holding cameras, they've got GoPro cameras strapped to their foreheads. Wow! Uh, and they're there to intimidate Marty. And they were uh, in, in Scientology. You have to practice Hubbard's techniques in the official church, the approved way. Pay lots of money. If you leave the church and continue to practice the auditing and counseling, you're, you're, they call you a squirrel, which is the mm. worst thing you can call a Scientologist. It means that you're um, squirreling the tech. You're, you're misusing Hubbard's ideas. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they were calling themselves squirrel busters, and they consider Marty a squirrel, because he was counseling people outside of the official church. Basically, it was an intimidation squad, Mm -hmm. that was outside of his house and following him around town every day for five months. Wow. And for the first part of that, I had that story all to myself. I was the only journalist in the country covering it. And I was in New York. Eventually, the local, some really good local reporters got onto it and did some excellent research. But it's just such a bizarre episode in the history, you know, of American religion, I guess. It's just, <laughs> it, it's, you watch that video, and it's just mm -hmm. hard to believe this is how a church defends itself against a former member. Yeah. And I think it really backfired on them. I don't know what, I don't, I'm not really sure what Miscavige thought he was going to get out of it, but now it's just like the quintessential um, example of how, <laughs> what Scientology does to people who dare criticize it. They, they send these goons to try to destroy your life. How, uh, to the best of your knowledge, I mean, do, does the Church of Scientology categorize their enemies, if you will? I mean, because obviously they're fighting a war on many fronts. You know, if it's a former Scientologist or, or members of the press or family members that demand to see their, you know, their loved ones that they haven't seen for years. Do you know if they categorize these they have, people? They have and some do they treat, how do they bit, go about yeah, it? Yeah, they have different labels. Mm -hmm. They have different labels for people. In general, we're talking about suppressive persons. Mm -hmm. um, in, in Hubbard philosophy, what's holding you back from going up that glorious bridge to superhuman godhood is suppression. And anything that holds you back is suppressive. Mm -hmm. And so people who criticize the Church of Scientology, people who leave and then badmouth it, these are called suppressive persons, and they're mm -hmm. called SPs for short. 
So basically all of the people that get targeted are SPs. In particular, Scientologists who leave and continue to use the Hubbard technology on their own, mm -hmm. they're called squirrels. Mm. So some SPs are squirrels. Okay. Reporters are called merchants of chaos. Oh, wow. So some SPs are merchants of chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and the, so they have, you know, some different terms for people. Yeah. But basically the idea is that you're, you know, you're suppressive, you're holding Scientology back. And Hubbard wrote in his policies that Scientology can do anything to you. If you're an SP, you can be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Your life can be completely turned upside down. So wow. uh, they take that seriously. I mean, they don't want to just make you go away. They want to ruin your life, destroy your career, mm -hmm. make you bankrupt, you know, drive you to suicide. This is this is what Scientology wants to do to people, and the, nobody was a better example than Paul and Cooper. Now, there was a story that came out uh, back in April, and I was uh, quite uh, shocked because I think it was the quite. first time. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I was very shocked because I think for the first time it kind of, allow people like myself who are, you know, are not 100% familiar with Scientology to see how far they're willing to go. And this this was a, a report that came out on how David Miscavige was having his own father tailed by uh, private investigators and the police got involved. I guess they pulled him over or, or, or something. And inside the, the van of this private investigator, they found an arsenal, you know, enough to arm a, a small army. You know, it's like hundreds of rounds and automatic weapons and rifles and yeah. whatnots. What does that tell us about the Church yeah. of Scientology? Well, it's a very significant story. They, Ron Miscavige Sr., David Miscavige's father, mm -hmm. Ron got his whole family into Scientology back in the 70s, or maybe it was late 50s. As David rose up the ranks and become the leader of Scientology, his father, Ron, he's a trumpet player, he's a musician. And so Scientology puts on a lot of events mm -hmm. that involve music, and so you would see Ron at these events. And, you know, he's a nice guy from Pennsylvania, and he's all, you know, his son ran the thing. Mm -hmm. Well, then in 2000, and, and, and they were out at the Int base, which is this, this massive compound near Hemet, California. Mm -hmm. In 2012, as I said, there's this mass exodus of longtime people that didn't like the way things were going and were leaving. Yeah. In 2012, Ron Sr. escaped from the base. Wow. He escaped from his own son's <laughs> church. Wow. And ran. Mm -hmm. And um, has been living in a couple of different places since then. Mm -hmm. He hasn't spoken publicly. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a lot of people are very interested in what he does have to say. Mm -hmm. And so his Miscavige started having private investigators follow him, his own father. And mm -hmm. the reason why it got... And, and these guys, see, the squirrel busters is the other end of the spectrum where Scientology will send out private investigators and they want you to know you're being followed because mm -hmm. they talk to you, people you worked with or your family members. That's called a noisy investigation, and that's intended to have a psychological effect to drive you away. Mm -hmm. Then the other kind of thing they do are these ghost spies that go out, and their job is not to be discovered. So mm -hmm. Ron Sr. was being followed by these two guys, and they were supposed to just completely blend in mm -hmm. and not be discovered. But they got messed up because, um, they were in this neighborhood they normally aren't in. Some people noticed them, thought they were suspicious, called the cops, and then they acted like idiots. And because of that, the, as you said, this arsenal was found, um, which I personally, my own belief is, they're a couple of gun nuts. They, weren't, they were not sent out there to assassinate Ron Sr. 
they just love guns like some people do. Okay. And mm-hmm. they had, but what got them in trouble was they had made a PVC silencer <laughs> yeah. for this assault rifle. And that's serious. Right, uh, right. The father, it was a father-son team, and Dwayne Powell was the father. He was facing 10 years in prison wow. for that little piece of PVC. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, facing that prospect, they sang like canaries. Wow. And they said, oh, yeah, we're working for the Church of Scientology. We're following this Ron Senior. Um, we're getting paid $10,000 a week. We're supposed to find people to befriend him that will you know, spy on him. We're looking over his shoulder at the local restaurant, see if we can see what's on his email. All this stuff. It's amazing. And I have the tapes of those interviews up on my website, and I thought other people would post them, but I'm, I guess I'm the only one. But if you want to hear the full tapes, they're at my website. And um, so, but the the best thing in this was that, again, keep in mind, they're they're getting paid 10000 a week. Mm-hmm to follow Ron, and they can't be seen. They can't be noticed. Right. So Ron is at this Walmart, and he's out in the parking, like a 79-year-old guy, right? Mm-hmm. But this, was actually, this actually happened a couple of years ago, but he was, you know, 77 then. And um, he's got a smartphone in his shirt pocket, and he goes mm-hmm. to reach for it and, it, and it, and he didn't get a good grip on it, and he's starting to lose it, and so he grabs his chest. Now, these guys are, are spying on him from the other end of the parking lot, uh-huh. and they see the 77-year-old man clutching his chest, and they're thinking, oh, no, he's having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Now, see, they can do one of two things. They can either call 911, or they can run over and help him. And either, in either case, there's a chance their cover will be blown, and they'll lose their 10000 a week. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why they called their handler, not because they were so worried about Ron's help, but they were worried about the money. They called their handlers, explained what was going on, and suddenly David Miscavige himself got on the phone mm-hmm. and told them, if it's his time, let him die. Wow. wow. And they told the police this, and it's on the record. So it's just incredible Unbelievable. information. And, mm-hmm. and here's the upshot. David Miscavige's greatest victory for Scientology was getting them tax exempt status back in 1993. Right. I would like to see... David Miscavige explained to the IRS how spending $10,000 a week for private investigators <laughs> to follow his own father in case wow. his own father said something negative about Scientology can be explained as a, uh, a religion, an expense that has a religious purpose. Wow. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, I, there's no question that the IRS mm-hmm. cared to could take away Scientology's tax and status tomorrow. Yeah. Because of the way they spend money for things like that. Is that something that, that you see as, as happening anytime soon? They will lose their tax-exempt status? It's hard to predict because, um, so, you know, IRS went through such battles mm-hmm. and ultimately caved. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they have the, you know, there's a lot of inertia there. They would need a, would need a lot of pressure from the public, mm-hmm. from Congress to get IRS to do that. And I don't know if it's there yet. And, and even with the movie going clear, I know I know Alex Gibney would like to see that happen. Yeah. But part of the part of the problem is that Scientology is a tiny organization. It gets it gets the press as if it was really it really had the ten million people that it claims. Right. But there's probably only forty thousand Scientologists around the world right now. Wow. It's always been a very small organization that gets more press than it deserves because it's got these celebrities mm-hmm. and it's odd and it's secretive. And, and, you know, people find it fascinating. 
So, you know, is, is the government ready to move heaven and earth, mm-hmm. take tax and status away from this tiny little group? So I, I think there's a lot of inertia involved. Um, I, I think Scientology's biggest problems are internal anyway. I think mm-hmm. David Miscavige is driving this thing into the ground. Wow. And the IRS, the FBI may be just sitting back saying, let's just watch this thing you know, and blow it on its own. And just to follow up on that, do you know, to the best of your knowledge, is there any evidence or even circumstantial evidence that show that the Church of Scientology has any kind of uh, leverage with the federal government? Do they have people in government that allow, for example, that maybe allow or help expedite the tax exempt process or anything like that? Oh, there's no question that they hire people who have influence in Washington. And, and one of their best um, tools for that was an, an attorney named Jerry Pfeffer. This was a guy in D.C. that had a lot of influence. And he helped them through a lot of these difficult fights. And, and he would go, you know, when the FBI was investigating Scientology for human trafficking mm-hmm. back in 2009, 2010, you know people like Jerry Pfeffer in D.C. were putting pressure on the Department of Justice to uh, try to derail that. Uh, I don't think there's any specific politicians mm-hmm. like Congress members because Scientology is too weird. And, you know, politicians don't get, want to get involved with, with Scientology. There have right. been a few like Dan Burton who's gotten involved with them, but he's out now. And, and so, I, you know, it's if Scientology tries to have influence, every once in a while you'll see a story in the press I told you, you have a lobbyist. They pay all this money, and actually, they they, they what they for an organization that, that has as much money as they do, worth billions, mm-hmm. they actually spend very little on lobbying in Washington. I know that mm-hmm. they. I think they know it's kind of useless, okay. but they hire individuals that have a power. I mean, influence in D.C. And you know, when they had the most, the when we could see that most visibly was during the Clinton administration. You know, uh, Germany had cracked down on Scientology, and Travolta and Cruz both put pressure on the Clinton White House to do something about it. So I'm curious to see what happens if Hillary Clinton becomes president, if Scientology will find another, you know, friendly White House or not. Yeah, I I, I did not know that. Um, if they can last that long, must be like what January twentieth, twenty seventeen, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's coming up. <laughs> um, quick question from the chat before we forget about it. It's from Jimbo Jimmy James, and um, I'll say Jimbo for now. Jimbo is asking, um, who do you think might be the third leader of Scientology? If it gets that far, I yeah. Suppose. Well, I, d- I doubt that there will be one because I think I think um, Miscavige will be able to keep things going for a while because he has so much cash. Mm-hmm. But if if Miscavige then runs into trouble, either through his own health or because of an investigation, I think Scientology is just going to be a mass of litigation and just, you know, mm-hmm. it'll be just tied up in court cases forever. And I think there will always be people outside of the organization that practice mm-hmm. Scientology, yeah. that have an interest in L. Ron Hubbard. I find it difficult to believe that the organization, the, the legal entity, Church of Scientology International and RTC, will will not just be completely tied up in the courts after miscavige is done. Wow. wow. And Tony, I wanted to ask you in regards to, you know, we're talking about how the Church of Scientology targets and, and harasses people. What has your experience been with the church in, in this regard? Yeah, I usually try to dodge that question, but in, in the movie Going Clear, Alex Gibney asked me, and, you know, he's Alex Gibney. So I did mention that, yeah, I have been targeted. Mm. Um, and just one example was that they had their chief dirty tricks private investigator, 
this guy named Dave LeBeau, and he twice, Dave visits to my mother and um, really upset her. And and that's the point is, it, it, you know, he's not going to get any information from her about me, but as soon as he leaves her porch, she then calls me and says, Tony, that Church of Scientology guy was here, and she's upset. Oh, nice. Makes me feel awful. And that's the point. The point is to make you psychologically terrorized mm-hmm. that they're out talking to your family members or people you used to work with and they've talked a lot you know trying to dig up dirt you know just make me worried about it and you just have to ignore it you know yeah. i'm just a reporter covering a story i don't have i was never a member of the church of scientology right. i just talked to people that were in it i gather documents and i write stories and i always do my best mm-hmm. get the church's version of things like in the book about paulette cooper mm-hmm. scientology wrote its own sort of response to paulette in 1974 but well, I studied that document very carefully. They wrote their own sort of version of what happened in the Snow White program in a book in the uh, 70s so, or 80s. And so I, I studied that very carefully. I want the church's side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, when you do this kind of work, they're going to do their best to, rather than, like, you know, you can see it in that, that statement you read. Instead of saying, here's what we don't like about his book because it says this or whatever, they call me a parasite. I mean, that's the best <laughs> yeah. they can do is call people names. Yeah. Um, I've always wondered, do you think it requires a certain type of person, you know, in terms of character and psychologically, to be susceptible to Scientology or whether anyone could be drawn into it? I think that's a good, a good question and something I think about because um, on the one hand, it's, it's only ever a appealed to a small percentage of the public. Mm-hmm. You know, most people, you know, hear, oh, we promise certainty, do this check sheet, and your life will get better. And they say, hey, come on, it doesn't, life doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so most people just aren't even going to be tempted. But I find that the people who are tempted, they're very many different kinds of folks. It's not like one personality type. Mm-hmm. But what they tend to share is it's a moment in their life when they're going through some real difficulty. So Bruce Hines, for example, this he was a physicist, yeah. right? a very scientific person. But at the time that you know, he fell into Scientology, mm-hmm. he'd just been through a bad breakup or something, and he was vulnerable. And I yeah. find that a lot when I talk to people. I'm like, what was going on in your life? And, you know, I was, you know, they were a young person, and they didn't felt like they didn't fit in, and they were looking for some mm-hmm. direction in life, or, or they had been through a bad breakup, or they had a bad relationship with their parents. Scientology finds something that they can convince you they can fix mm-hmm. and so you know, virtually anybody could be susceptible to it and I think that was the message that Alex Gibney really wanted people to get from going clear when you have Paul Haggis and Jason Begay Mike Winder, Marty Rathbun I mean these were intelligent people yeah. you know Hannah Whitfield, Spanky mm-hmm. Taylor these are really creative successful intelligent people and they all fell into this thing for one reason or another you know mm-hmm. and they, like I said they tend to have something that was difficult in their life at the time. Mm-hmm. Wow. As I mentioned to you in one of my emails, we had a former Scientologist on the show, and she's a very lovely lady, and, and she began to tell me about the kids who are born into the church and grow up in the church, and that's all they know. To be honest, that terrified me a bit, because I can't imagine growing up in that environment, and then I kind of understood a little bit how hard it could be for someone to leave if that's all you've known. Have you spoken to anybody that was born in the church and, you know, when they got older, they left? Oh, yeah, lots of them. What's, I, I, feel, I was just going to say, you know, you if know, you could tell us a little bit are, about the experience of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, some people dismiss Scientologists and say, oh, they were too stupid. They got into this stupid thing. I think, you know, how can you say that? Because a lot of them were born into it. I mean, their parents got mm-hmm. them into it. Yeah. It's all they knew. And um, some of the second generation, third generation Scientologists go through some of the worst because, you know, Hubbard's idea is that we're these immortal souls mm-hmm. that have lived countless times. So when you and I see a child, we see an underdeveloped small mammal mm-hmm. that seems to learn a lot to understand life. Mm-hmm. I look at that little creature and think, that's an ancient being that's lived countless times before, and mm-hmm. it's really an adult in a small package. Wow. And so they have very different ideas about child rearing. Mm-hmm. We hear about parents just basically abandoning their kids to um, these Scientology organizations mm-hmm. because they think that, well, you know, they, they live past lives. Um, and you may be the father or mother of this human now, but 15 or 16 lifetimes ago, you might have been their child mm-hmm. or you might have been, you know, romantically involved. I mean, they have some really wow. strange ideas yeah. about the family unit that it's kind of an illusion. And remember, we're all just immortal Satan. And so you find stories about Scientology parents that they're, you know, they just basically sign their kids over to the organization. So I've talked to, I've talked to kids, people who, when they were kids, signed those Sea Org billion year contracts Mm -hmm. when they were seven years old. Wow. Promising their entire life to Scientology. Wow. Uh, and and with the, it's incredibly, you know, it's bad enough to leave Scientology and then try to get out of that programming and get back into the modern world. But for some of these people, they never interacted with the modern world. They, You know, we, right. we find these people that when they come out of Scientology, they've never had a driver's license. Mm-hmm. They don't even know what insurance is. Mm-hmm. They've never had a legitimate job. And in fact, some of these, uh, I know at least one wealthy former Scientologist that set up kind of a halfway house for these escaped Sea Org members so they could come live with at his house and then he could show them, he could help them get their documentation and teach them about the modern world because they come out of this with mm-hmm. so few skills. Wow. So, wow. yeah, I think that, you know, all the things that Scientologists go through in general is always worse for the people that grew up in it. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. It sounds like it, it, it must be a very traumatizing experience just getting out of it, needless to say, being in it. Um, speaking of being born into the Church of Scientology, a lot was said about the, this practice of silent birth, you know, and we heard a lot about it when Tom Cruise and Katie Holm were together and, and they had their, their baby girl. What can you tell me about this uh, silent birth? Is that something exclusive to Scientology or did they yeah, it is. And, and I don't know. Else. I don't know why they're still doing it because it really only comes from Dianetics, not Scientology. But mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. original idea, Hubbard's original idea in Dianetics, was that the most traumatic memories that you absorb that affect you later in life happen when you're an egg, sperm, or zygote. Mm-hmm. So you're this okay. little fetus inside your mother, and mom and dad have rough sex and argue. This is straight out of the book Dynamics, I'm telling you. All oh, wow. This is such a strange, such a strange and turgid book. And Hubbard was obsessed with the idea that every woman attempted abortion multiple times in her pregnancies. Oh, wow. And all these fetuses went through all this trauma. So by the time you were born, um, you already had all these, these traumas, but you absorbed it through what people said around you. Mm-hmm. So his idea was when the baby's being born, make sure everyone stays completely silent. Because the baby is very 
vulnerable at that point, and anything somebody says mm-hmm. could be absorbed as an engram in the infant, and 40 years later come up again in a way that's harmful. Yeah. But the, the ways are so ridiculous. But, for example, um, so an example from this book, if I remember correctly, was that somebody said the word aspirin, like a, a, a pill, right? Mm-hmm. Aspirin around a baby or, or a, you know, a fetus in the womb. And the baby's brain absorbed that literally, but as the word aspirin. Hmm. And as an adult develops a rash on his behind. This is the That's level extreme. of science wow. <laughs> in Dianetics. Wow. And so they don't want the baby to hear anything when it's being born because somebody may say the word aspirin and 40 years later that person's going to have a rash. Wow. I mean, it's the most ludicrous thing in the world, but for, for Scientologists, it's kind of a loyalty test, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, I did the silent birth. that was incredibly difficult, but I'm part of this group and that's what we do. You know what I'm saying? Oh, my God. No, I was just going to say it's it's ironic because they'll even go to the extents of making a pregnant woman, as we found out earlier today, um, go through what they call, um, I believe, the rehabilitation program. Um, it's almost like forced labor or well, some sort. Well, yeah, but the point was if they believe that, you know, anything the mother and the baby experience prenatally affects that baby, then it's crazy to think that they'll still make the you know the mother go through mm-hmm. harsh crazy <clears throat> horrible conditions and forced labor during pregnancy yeah no it, it is um and tony and i'm pretty sure you're familiar with the big blue building here in in hollywood what is the purpose of this building i mean i've heard that they that's where they keep some people in solitary confinement in like the seventh floor or, or like the top floor there but it also looks kind of nice i mean I, like what what goes on there i mean they even named the little street in front of it l ron hubbard um okay. <laughs> which is a testament i guess to you know how much money they got yeah. to uh do these things but what that what is the purpose a, of that? Uh, that that was a hospital it was known as cedars of lebanon and scientology purchased it in i want to say february 19 19- 77. Mm-hmm. They'd only been in there a few months when they were raided by the FBI later that year. Um, uh, I talked to somebody this weekend who claims he was the one who suggested that color blue when they were quizzing people there at the time. Really? And um, I don't I don't have evidence to prove what he was saying, but it sounded like... It. But anyway, he was there when that happened. Mm-hmm. So they, they painted the entire thing that very, you know, the color blue that everybody knows is called Big Blue. Its mm-hmm. its official name is, is Pacific Area Command or PAC mm-hmm. base, uh, and it has several different facilities within it. Uh, there's something called the AO, which is the Advanced Organization. That's where people go for their top level removing body things from themselves. There's something called wow. ASHO, which is the American Saint Hill Organization. That's where you go clear with something called the special briefing course. And then there's that V-shaped building at the at the south end that's the most famous. It's got the big Scientology sign on yeah. it. And, yeah, it's birthing. A lot of Steelers people live there, and a lot of people are punished there. And Spanky Taylor talked about being on the top floor with all these people that were in trouble. Mm-hmm. And the people who are in trouble in the Steelers go through something called 
the Rehabilitation Project Force, the RPF. Mm. And it's basically a prison program. And they have to run everywhere, and they wear these boiler suits, and they eat straps. Um, And going through the RPF used to take several months before you finally were allowed back in the regular population, and you could... You can't you can't call home or that. Hmm. In more recent years, it takes years to get off of the RPF. I talked oh, to wow. a guy that was in the RPF for seven years. Wow! No, he spent the millennium out at their RPF ranch. It was just another night, like any other night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just it, it's it's amazing that in the United States, that an organization like Scientology can have this essentially prison program. Yeah, uh, that people get sent to for anything, like talking back or. You know, there's no, there's no court or sentencing or anything like that. So that, wow. so some of that, uh, it's, as far as are there RPF people in, at the Big Blue today? I think there are. Mm-hmm. I talked to some young women that were there recently, um, and had left. And, you know, it, it's still a place where, where people get training to get sent around the world and help run Scientology. But, uh, yeah, they, it was called Berendo Way, I think it was, something like that. It got renamed L. Ron Hubbard Way by the city council. Wow. Um, and you know, it's just, it's a shell of what it once was. It's, it's largely empty now and all of Scientology is struggling and they have these big buildings that are virtually empty. Yeah, no, you know, you drive around town and it's funny, you know, and whether it's, it's an affluent area or, you know, some of the, the, the more not, not best kept areas of town, but you will find some huge fancy looking building. And from what I've heard, yeah, it's that they're all empty. You know, here are all these, you know, fancy buildings, yet they're, they're empty. But it's a true, uh, what I was told that, you know, the, that they buy these up as, uh, places of worship because, you know, I guess as a, as a, as a religious organization with a tax exempt status, you, you have to invest into houses of worship for your church members. But nobody is really found there doing any kind of, you know, worship. <laughs> it's becoming a dwindling organization mm-hmm. and it's harder for them to keep people in and they keep buying buildings but they're they, they keep buying buildings to pretend that it's expanding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they have the cash but right. they they just can't fill it with people wow it, you know unfortunately we have run out of time but it's been an amazing time talking to you why don't you tell people where they can find you and where they can get your book which uh, you know, it sounds like a great right? uh, thank you I, I write about Scientology at my own website it's TonyOrtega.org Mm-hmm. Also known as the Underground Bunker, mm-hmm. uh, we cover Scientology there every day, and I've got an amazing community of folks who know so much about it and really talk to each other. It's a it's a great internet forum, unlike most others. And um, the book is called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. It's available at Amazon, and um, I've got uh, a lot of extra material for it at the website. So, for example. I couldn't include any photographs in the book, mm-hmm. but I've got a lot of photographs of Paulette and her life on the website that go with it. Awesome. And you're going to be in London, you said, right? To uh... I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be in D.C. on July 12th. I'm going to be in uh, at the Mark Twain House. Nice. In Hartford mm-hmm. on July 14th. Then I'm going to go west. I'll be in Denver and Texas, and then I'm going over to Paris and London. There we go. And then after that, I'm going to be. Um, in the Northwest, I'm going to do Minneapolis and then Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver in September. 
Wow. That sounds like an awesome trip. Yeah, no, you, you definitely have a busy schedule. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I know your, your plane had just landed and, and you, you know, you pretty much got on the phone with us. And, and believe me, I, I, no we really appreciate it that you were so uh, generous with your time. Hey, your questions were great. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad. And don't forget to follow Tony Ortega on Twitter, right? At Tony Ortega 94 is the Twitter handle. So definitely give him a follow. Tony, thank you so much. We will let you uh, get some rest now. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Have a great night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. That was uh, uh, a lot of information. That was, was, yeah. uh, And honestly, I, I... it's amazing. The, the more you find out about <laughs> the Church of Scientology, the scarier it gets. And, you know, we, we got to give Tony Ortega huge props for doing what he does. And uh, Lynn, who, who was on our show the, as, a, you know, the former Scientologist that we interviewed, she said that, that one of the things that she found is that you can't be afraid of them. And I think Tony is definitely the embodiment of somebody that doesn't sound afraid at all of the church and is willing to 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 put out there you know what what is really going on in that organization yeah, no, i mean just you know i i'd be the sort of person who'd be pretty darn scared honestly i'm not exactly sure what i would do i couldn't i can't mentally fully put myself into that situation and i don't know whether i would have the guts to do what he does yeah and do what, you know, people like Paulette Cooper did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was a question which unfortunately came just a second too late in the chat um, by Professor Madness. And he was asking if um, Tony Ortega moderates his site. And um, if it even just answers the question a little, uh, he does have a blog webmaster and he's called Scott Pilutik. Scott Pilotic. Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but um, I'm sure if at all, it would be Scott who moderates the website. Yeah. And definitely grab his book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. It sounds like a great read here at West of the Rockies. We're going to we're gonna grab a copy and, and definitely uh, check it out because it sounds like an amazing story. And the way um, Tony wrote it, it sounds like it should be a really interesting uh, read. That's for sure. Well, yeah, almost, so, almost like uh, an exciting adventure yeah. written in yeah, so, real time. Yeah. So once again, don't forget, check out his website. Um, follow him on Twitter. We're going to be posting all this info on our website uh, as well as the uh, the audio for this interview. In case you missed any part of it, it'll be on our website. And also, uh, our podcasts are available on iTunes. So if you go to iTunes and type in West of the Rockies, you'll see us on there. Click subscribe. Check out some of the past shows. We've had some excellent guests. Um, and uh, and we'll definitely be uh, uploading this one in the, in the next couple of days for mm-hmm. everyone's enjoyment because, yeah, it, w- it was an amazing show. It was, a, it was a great show. Once again, huge thanks to Tony Ortega uh, for, for being our guest tonight. Definitely. And with that, we're going to bid adieu to everybody. <laughs> I hope I said that I right. I don't think you've ever said that. I never don't even said know that. what that means. Yeah. Anyways, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, yeah, process yeah, all the yeah, information. Your brain's somewhere else right now. Uh, but uh, we're going to go out with a track that I heard this week. And, uh, you know, it's pretty cool. You know, I thought it was an old song. It turns out that it's actually a new song from an album that hasn't even been it's released yet. Old. Yeah, it's pretend old. Uh, but it's a band... Uh, that goes by the name of The Arcs. And apparently it's uh, the singer from um, 
I forgot the name of that uh, other the, band. Uh, Black Keys. The Black yeah. Keys. There you go. And I guess this is the first single off their uh, forthcoming debut album, uh, which is really cool. Enjoy. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. We're going to have another exciting show. If you are going to do something crazy, film it and post it online. <laughs> yep. And uh, and again, don't forget to check out the website, WTRRadio.com. As always, Engineer Frank on Twitter. West of the Rockies on Facebook. Genevieve Uwe on Twitter. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. Enjoy this one. We'll Good see you night. next week. Bye-bye. Bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.